And if ever there were a person to ask, it's you. Does size actually matter? Yeah, and I don't know if we got to this, but I'm gay, so I don't know if I really am the best person to ask this question. But yeah, from a technical perspective, it matters to the extent that it can go deeper into the reproductive canal to extract foreign sperm cells. Friends, welcome to a load of BS podcast with me, Daniel Ross. This week, I'm sharing the second part of my conversation with experimental psychologist Dr. Jesse Bering, an American but director of the Center for Science Communication at the University of Otago in beautiful New Zealand. Since we did the formal credits last time, something a bit more personal about Jesse now. He lives in beautiful Dunedin with his partner Juan and their two cheeky border terriers, Hanno and Cora. Now, last week, we discussed the science of the afterlife, out-of-body experiences, and Jesse's very memorable and poignant experience of his own mother's death. This time, we venture into the no less complicated and controversial subjects of suicide, sexuality, and fetishes. Not your normal weekly grocery bag, but all topics which demand significant airtime in their own rights, as I repeat in the conversation itself upcoming. But by presenting the big questions and challenges, I hope at a minimum this pricks your interest. So before we start a couple of quick notices, I need you to help me out. So if you haven't done so already, please subscribe or follow me on Apple or Spotify and get onto a load of bs.substack.com and subscribe there to my writings where you'll find the pod archives too. Now, lastly, remember that you can put your own questions forward for upcoming shows. And if I include it, I shall credit you in the show. Next in line is football writer and broadcaster Guillaume Balaguer, with whom I'll be talking about two football icons who Guillaume knows intimately, that's Pep Guardiola and Diego Maradona, and we'll be talking about the characteristics and traits that made them both great and terribly fragile. If you've got a question for Guillaume, email me at danielsjross at gmail.com or DM me on Twitter at danielsjross. Now let's get cracking. Let's switch gears from the afterlife and talk about another taboo, perhaps, in your arsenal, what one could call a neighbouring subject, that's suicide, something you've written about, indeed published a book on called Suicidal, Why We Kill Ourselves, a very straightforward choice of words. That was the US title. The UK title was A Very Human Ending. Aha. Okay. Thank you. That's a good addition. Thank you. I want to try to disentangle some conventional wisdom and misconception. The conventional wisdom, as I understand it, is that suicide Suicide for most people is a passing temptation. In other words, if only they can see off a temporary state of anguish, they can move on and progress in their lives. Is that convenient and oversimplistic description? I think that that describes a large percentage of suicide cases, that these are episodes of emotional flooding, these overwhelming affective experiences where people act in response to these emotional episodes that they just simply can't get a handle on. I guess I would hesitate to use impulsive because they've probably been experiencing suicidal ideation for quite some time. It doesn't come out of nowhere. But the impulsive element in conjunction with the emotional 
triggers, I think, is what makes it particularly dangerous. And this sort of acute suicidal thinking tends to wear off after about 24 hours. So you might still feel pretty miserable and depressed and despondent, but that urge or that feeling like you need to kill yourself tends to subside even after about 24 hours. So if you can somehow, I mean, the point of the book was basically if you understand how it works and if you can intellectualize it to stave off, I guess, this impulsive decision making, at least for that period of time, you're much more likely to make it through to the other side. Another sometimes accepted wisdom is that suicide is ultimately a selfish act, by definition egocentric and so leaving others in despair. Is that an oversimplistic view or is that is that fair? I think that one is oversimplistic because people that are in the throes of suicidal thinking have a number of psychological impairments in terms of their cognitive functioning that interferes with their long-term decision-making and their ability to take the perspective of others. So they are operating in this sort of egocentric framework, but it's not because they are selfish or necessarily trying to harm the people that they love or not thinking about what's going to happen to their family and so on. It's, it's just because they are so myopically centered on their own problems and ruminating on them that they cannot take the perspective of others as effectively as we could if we're in a, in a healthier psychological state. So yeah, I hate to generalize suicidal behavior across the board because of course there's, there are different subcategories of suicide and the motivations for suicide and so on. But for the stereotypical account of somebody in a suicidal state, to say that it's selfish is just short-sighted and it's not taking account of the psychological evidence. And then there's the oft-talked-about attribution of mental illness to suicide. And I often wonder if such a diagnosis is also a, is a convenient post-rationalization. It becomes a labeling exercise really for something that we just don't understand that well. I think the mental illness label is overall probably not the best approach because for people that are suicidal but don't necessarily recognize themselves as being mentally ill or one of those types of people, it happens so suddenly potentially that they feel like it's a foreign or exotic type of diagnosis that they're not particularly vulnerable to. And my argument in the book is that we are all potentially suicidal. If you manipulate our sort of socio-environmental conditions in the right way, we all have the potential to take our own lives. And some of us are much more vulnerable to that than others, but it is a human response to a particular set of social psychological factors. So to say that it, to be suicidal is a reflection of mental illness, I think is wrongheaded. Now, that makes a lot of sense. And actually, you've written yourself, you know, they're actually touching on the point you just made that in all of us, there is some predisposition towards its greater or lesser extent. You've written that sometimes, you know, the idea of actually ending one's life may not be wholly irrational, specifically where obvious mental illness isn't in play. And, and you've accepted that that's a rather problematic position to take. But I suppose as a scientist, you say that there's logic there. I wonder whether you might explain that a little more. It's a very delicate subject because you don't want to come across as having some sort of argument that suicide is a good decision. It is simply in the face of particular types of problems and long-term decision-making, there are cases where I think it would be just disingenuous to say that suicide is an irrational choice. The most obvious, of course, would be people that are suffering from some sort of debilitating a physical or psychiatric condition that impairs the quality of their life in such a dramatic way that continued living would outweigh the value of any joy that they might experience in the future. And there's sort of the evolutionary argument behind suicide, which is curious, of course, because it's a, it's a little counterintuitive because superficially it would seem to go against every Darwinian imperative, but perhaps there are subconscious activity going on which is driving it. 
Right. So it does seem to fly in the face of traditional Darwinian thinking, which above all else, you need to be alive to perpetuate your genetic material. However, if you dig beneath the surface a bit and you take into consideration inclusive fitness in terms of the representation of your genetic material as it's carried forward by your biological relatives, then it becomes a little bit more complicated, this question of suicide. And I was influenced by an article that was published in 1980 by a Canadian psychologist named Dennis DeCatnazaro, who was the first and I think really sort of the only, even now, evolutionarily minded psychologist to make the argument that under certain conditions, suicide can be an adaptive response. And again, by saying adaptive, it doesn't give it any sort of moral weight in terms of being good or bad. It's just simply saying mechanistically, killing yourself or removing yourself from the population could enhance your ultimate inclusive fitness goal. For instance, if you are such a burden, I guess, to your biological relatives and have absolutely no success in terms of heterosexual relations and having offspring of your own and your existence could potentially siphon off resources from your nieces or nephews or others that are related to you. By removing yourself from the population, you're shoring up those resources to increase their reproductive success. And that's the sort of long and short of it, that there are certain evolutionary conditions in which suicide would have been biologically adaptive. I'm extremely conscious of skimming the surface of what is an extremely complex yeah, uh, yeah. and profound subject. And we're sort of, we're trying to cover it in 15 minutes. Let me just make that point. And the message is oftentimes lost in translation, I guess, because people, no matter what you say, and how many times you sort of preface these remarks by saying that it's not good or bad, or you should or you shouldn't, people still hear that word adaptive, and they think it somehow means that they shouldn't. In fact, there's no particular reason that we should behave adaptively, even if it is in the interest of our genetic success. I'll ask just a final question on this subject, a question you may have a view on. There are different schools of thought on how should psychologists support vulnerable people? Do you have views on that. That's a big question. For people that are really sort of in the weeds of some sort of existential crisis or ruminating on suicide obsessively, there are all sorts of different kind of therapy approaches to sort of trying to extricate the person from that psychological mindset. Personally, I think just distraction is an incredibly effective tool. I mean, I wrote this from the perspective of somebody who has had suicidal thoughts personally. And in writing this book, I wanted to kind of go back. It's a terrible place to be, but I wanted to visit that mindset and think of what helped me, I guess, at that time. And when one of the things that really helped me, and this was going back, you know, I think I was at the peak of my suicidal thinking was probably in my early 20s, I would say, late teens when I was a university student and was going through all sorts of personal struggles. But one of the things that I found was that the more that I would immerse myself in reading, the better able I was to remove myself from the immediacy of my own destructive thoughts, because basically I was able to replace my own doomsday thinking with the voice of somebody else. It's almost like you're possessed by the personality of the author, especially if it's a really immersive sort of experience. So I can see that with books, especially it's kind of like just, I liken it to like putting on a glove over a scarred hand. You know, you just kind of wear that glove temporarily as a sort of prosthetic device over your own, your own terrible thinking. And if you can do that enough and get you through a period of time that, you know, maybe the next day will be a little bit better. But I can see the same thing working for, for some with, you know, movies or video games or anything like that to sort of just smother your own terrible ruminations with the voice and personality of another person. Become somebody else temporarily. That's what fiction and nonfiction to some extent allows you to do. 
There's so much more we could say on the subject, but I am going to change the subject again because I want to ask you about one of the other major taboos, this time at the front and center of most of our lives, and that's sexuality and perversion. So you've written a couple of books on the subject, both with rousing titles, as we touched on at the beginning, Perv, the Sexual Deviant in All of Us, and then Why is the Penis Shaped Like That? The latter of which is a broad set of essays about genitalia, sexual desire, free will, and actually suicide. Again, So why is the penis shaped like that? Well, it is the subject of debate still, but the theoretical interpretation that I find the most convincing is one that was put forward by Gordon Gallup in the 1990s. And his argument boils down to the shape of the human phallus being a semen displacement device, especially the glands of the human penis and the coronal ridge is meant to extract the semen and of course the sperm cells of rival males had had sex with the same female partner within about a 24 to 48 hour period. So it is a, in colloquial terms, I guess you might call it a sort of plunger device or mechanism in which the erect penis and the coronal ridge and the shape of the head of the penis is basically designed to remove the sperm cells of competitor males in your in-group or potentially surreptitious males from the outgroup. And it tells us a lot of things. If that is true, we can make inferences about human sexuality and the ancestral past that it was relatively common for human females to have had multiple sexual partners in a relatively short period of time. And it doesn't tell us anything about whether those reproductive pairings were consensual or not, but it does tell us that it happened enough to exert adaptive or selective pressure in human evolution for this particular morphological design. And if ever there were a person to ask, it's you. Does size actually matter? Yeah. And I don't know if we got to this, but I'm gay. So I don't know if I really am the best person to ask this question. But yeah, from a technical perspective, it matters to the extent that it can go deeper into the reproductive canal to extract foreign sperm cells. And there are all sorts of little sort of sub hypotheses related to this. And one went a long way in explaining why after we ejaculate, we tend not to be particularly horny for a period of time, which is that we would essentially be disadvantaged our own reproductive success if we were to continue to thrust and remove our own sperm cells after we've had an orgasm from a male perspective, at least. You know, a lot of this is kind of common sense, or it's intuitive, or it makes sense sort of in the light of evolutionary theory, but we don't really think about these things in the absence of that interpretive framework. So let's move momentarily from genitals to perversions. So perversions, when do we develop them? Are they born of nature or nurture? Well, first of all, we have to define perversions. And one of the most interesting things that I've stumbled across with writing the book Perv was that the word pervert etymologically has transformed dramatically over the past couple of hundred years. It was originally used to describe atheists. In fact, it had nothing at all to do with sexuality. Somebody who was a pervert was somebody who went against the law or the rule or the word of God. They were going against what is right, essentially. That was the literal interpretation of the word. And it was only relatively, you know, recently in the history of the English language in the late 19th century with the Victorian era sexologists that the word pervert came to mean sexual deviance, which again had these sort of quasi-religious connotations because it was going against what is right. And it was used originally to describe homosexuals. Perverts were those that were 
were attracted to the same biological sex. And that's how it was used exclusively for well over 100 years. And it was only more recently that it's culturally, the usage has transfigured itself into, I guess, what we would call sort of really deviant, atypical paraphilias or fetishes that the word is commonly used today. So where do perversions come from? I guess the answer to that question depends on what we mean by perversion. If you mean paraphilias or fetishes, that sort of thing, it is an incredibly difficult question to answer because you can't do controlled psychology experiments where you manipulate the conditions of somebody, a child, for instance, growing up and sort of wait until they're 18 to see who's a sexual deviant or not. So you really can only rely on people that have some sort of paraphilia or some sort of fetish retrospectively looking back at the origins of their own desires and trying to find these salient autobiographical episodes where they first became conscious or aware of what they were attracted to and how it was different from other people. Or you could look at animal models. You know, there have been some sort of clever studies looking at tinkering with the ontogeny or the developmental experiences of rat pups, for instance, and seeing what their grown-up rats are into when they're adults. One of my favorite studies is this study where you've got this mother rat who's just given birth to a litter of pups, and the experimenter coated her teats with a lemon scent, and the rat pups suckled, therefore, with this lemony-scented teat experience. And when the male pups grew up, they could only get aroused and ejaculate with female rats that had that same lemony smell. The female rat pups, it didn't seem to influence their sexual orientation or what they could be aroused by at all as adult females. It was the males that were much more easily shaped by those early sexual experiences. And, you know, whatever inference you want to make to that in terms of human sexuality is difficult because, you know, there's a very wide evolutionary gap between the common ancestor of rats and human beings. But I think it does speak a little bit to the fact that the paraphilias and fetishes are overwhelmingly disproportionately represented among human males. You are listening to A Load of BS with me, Daniel Ross, and my guest, Dr. Jesse Bering. Now, before we continue, I must mention mention my sponsor, rather, of a load of BS. Get your tongue in order. Crankwheel from Iceland. These guys are as cool as ice and are sweeping up new clients like crazy as more of us just get that Zoom fatigue and want rather simpler ways to engage online with our colleagues. Now, some of us have the ability to paint a picture in a few words, and I've got to say, Crankwheel, I'm afraid, is for the rest of us. It just gives you zero friction screen sharing during voice calls. So you send a link to the other person, they enter that on any browser or any device. You don't have to log in, there's no registration. It's just great for sales calls or for onboarding customers, really for any business looking to engage with your customers efficiently. Now, very excitingly, a load of BS subscribers can use Crankwheel Unlimited for two months by simply signing up at get.crankwheel.com forward slash load of BS. Well, after rat pup arousal, where on earth next? In this final part of the show, we talk about Lucy the chimpanzee, common and less common fetishes, and the fine line between normality and morality. On with the show. Because I was wondering, is there significant study in fetishes in, in non-humans or is, is that are those sort of isolated examples? There are, you know, just those types of examples. You've got other examples where different types of ungulates, I think like sheep and goats were raised by the other species. And then you look to see what 
they're sexually attracted to as adults. So sort of these adopted individual animals. And again, they found that the males of either of those species, when they reach sexual maturity, they could only get sexually aroused by the adoptive species, not their own biological species, whereas the females were attracted to both. And then there are, there are other anecdotes. There was a Lucy, who was a famous chimpanzee that learning sign language in the 1960s, and she was raised by a human family and all sorts of sort of experiments that they were giving her that weren't very controlled, but one was to give her, as a teenage chimpanzee, she was given a Playgirl magazine, and she opened up the spread of like some man and was basically gyrating on the exposed penis of the human in that image. And she wasn't attracted to other male chimpanzees. So wow. um, yeah, I think that, you know, environmental experiences certainly cumulatively seem to shape adult expressions of human sexuality. But I think it would also be a mistake to assume that it is only our developmental experiences or only nature that shapes our adult sexuality. I mean, it's clearly epigenetic. Why are males more predisposed to fetishes than females? That's not entirely clear. And I don't think that there's a very good explanation for why there is this clear gender representation with fetishes and paraphilias. I think, you know, one sort of vague or loose interpretation would be that female sexuality is more fluid or pliable. I mean, this isn't quite connected, but one argument is that in the ancestral past, women would have adaptive advantage if they were physiologically able to be aroused across as wide a variety of stimuli as possible because of the threat of sexual coercion and basically rape. So to prevent anatomical or physical damage to their reproductive anatomy, their bodies would have to respond essentially as though they were aroused, even though consciously and psychologically there was a disconnect in terms of what they wanted. Whereas with males, you know, it's pretty much a straight course between the brain and the erection that you know what you're attracted to and that's it. So what are some of the more common fetishes? And then can you give some examples about some of the more esoteric niche interests? Yes, and I think that there is, whether if there's one or two people in the entire world that happen to get aroused by the thought of falling down a flight of stairs, or, you know, they're attracted to somebody who sneezes, although, ironically enough, there's an entire website devoted to people with sneeze fetishes, and they were very upset at me because they thought I was somehow minimizing the importance of their particular sexual orientation. Whether they deserve their own names, I guess, or a clinical diagnosis, I guess, is the subject of some debate. But some of the more common ones would be foot fetish. Foot fetishes is very common, even though I happen to find personally feet incredibly aversive and unattractive. There are people that are really, really into feet. There are a lot of partialists. These are people that are primarily attracted to particular parts of the body. So they find, for instance, the lips or the nose or the earlobes to be more arousing than the genitalia. That's sort of what defines them and really gets them off. There's a difference between a fetish and a paraphilia. A fetishist is somebody who is really attracted to to objects that somebody that they desire has had physical contact with. So if you've got somebody who is really into, I don't know, bras or panties, they're only attracted to the objects because it's made physical contact with the person that they desire. They wouldn't be attracted to a pair of panties or bras that they bought off the shelves at the store. They want that sort of that essence or the physical connection with the actual person. So is paraphilia then a catch-all term of which fetish a fetish then is a, is a subset of, just to be clear on the definition? Right. Yes. 
Yes. Okay, got it. I mean, just going back to the falling down the stairs fetish, I mean, it seems quite a physically complex thing to accomplish. I'm trying to sort of think through how that works. You have to be sort of set off or pushed, and it's curious. I think we'll have to find the one person in Pakistan that is actually interested in that and have a conversation with him. So I, I don't know the logistics of that particular paraphilia. It is out there. It's been documented. There's a forensic case study, but yeah, not very common. I suppose not. Now, here's a more sort of serious question, but when our fetishes okay, when are they positive and when are they harmful? Is it, I imagine that there's it's a difficult to finding the line between what you might call sort of normality and morality. It really is. And it was a much more difficult book to write from a philosophical perspective than I was anticipating. When I first set out to write this book on sort of the psychology of sexual deviance and perversions and all that, it was really meant to be just kind of a whistle-stop tour of all the interesting laboratory work that people were doing and the case studies and the history of sexuality. But somewhere along the way, I had a conversation with my editor and it was kind of like, okay, well, what's the message? You know, what's the point? What are you saying is acceptable or unacceptable and all that? And I really had to force myself into these really difficult corners to answer that question because what is horrible and disgusting and yucky to one person defines another person sexually. And I guess in the end, you know, I, I really sort of settled on this question of harm. You know, if we're really going to do this complex subject justice, we have to get a better handle on what is harmful and what is not harmful. And it should be demonstrable in that sense. But even that is difficult, of course, because, I mean, if you think of extreme examples, I, I wrote about sexual cannibals. You know, if you've got somebody who is that they can only get sexual gratification by pretending to or actually ingesting the body. This is absolutely disgusting. I should just give you a warning. <laughs> ingesting the body parts of somebody else. And you've got another person that willingly volunteers themselves to be consumed for that purpose. The question of harm philosophically becomes a little bit more complicated than it might appear at first glance. And I mean, that's a totally extreme example, like I said, but you know, it's meant to sort of push us into these difficult positions and think much more deeply about why we have such a need jerk assumptions about right and wrong when it comes to human sexual behavior. And are there certain types of people who are more susceptible? And we talked about gender bias, but are there certain types of people who are more susceptible to this or is that's not possible to um, decipher? There have been some limited research on genetic susceptibility to particular types of paraphilias, especially the erotic age orientations, looking at pedophilia, for instance, there does seem to be a heritable component to pedophilic sexual orientation, which is interesting to note because it suggests that this is something that people, I mean, to me, it seems obvious that nobody would choose in their right mind to be the most aberrant person on the face of the earth to, be, to sort of decide to be a pedophile, that in fact, there is a strong genetic component to having an erotic attraction to children. The trick, of course, is to help those people to make non-harmful decisions and to give them the resources that they need, given the situation that they're in, to prevent damage to children. Shall we do some quick fire to round off? Sure. It's a leading question. The answer, I'm afraid, is always yes, uh, whether you like it or not. <laughs> Okay. What's your most powerful memory? Probably my first encounter with death and, you know, really beginning to think about what happens to those that we love once they die. In this case, 
I've always been a really big dog fan, really close to my dogs. And I was eight years old when we had an elderly golden retriever named Sam who just gone downhill. I didn't know it was quite as imminent as it was, but I came home from school one day and my father had told me that he had to put her to sleep and he was crying and everybody was upset. And I remember thinking that I wanted to let her know because I didn't get a chance to say goodbye to her at the vet because they assumed that I, you know, I was too young that they didn't want to put me through that. But I felt deprived somehow that I never got that closure, that chance to say goodbye to her. So I wrote a long letter to her telling her how much she, I loved her and she meant to me. And I went into the backyard and for whatever reason, I tore up the letter into these little tiny bits and pieces and I threw it to the wind. And somehow I assumed that she would get the message that way because it was some sort of strange spiritual exercise that all of a sudden I thought that my dog could was both literate and could physically read <laughs> these bits of paper that I had scattered to the wind. So that was when I was eight. And I think that that's probably my, my first most powerful emotional memory. Oh, it's a lovely story. Tell us something interesting about yourself most people don't know. Um, I don't know how interesting it is, but, I, but I've but always taken a bit of pride in the fact that I, at least supposedly, and I would be willing to look at this from a genealogical forensic perspective too, because I know that there are people who have actually done research on this, related to Vetus Bering, who was the discoverer of the Bering Strait and Alaska. Bering Sea. He died of scurvy, apparently, and he was buried in Bering Island. And only in the past 50 years or so was his grave exhumed and an autopsy performed. And we have old family tree that was written in the 18th century, written in German in our house that has him on it. So I've always found that a point of pride and kind of interesting. I guess the irony is that I am absolutely horrible with directions and have no navigational sense whatsoever and completely reliant on my partner for getting out of the driveway. But yeah, Vetus Bering is my relative. Cool. That's great. Which book do you gift most regularly? None of them, really, because I'm, I'm always a little bit embarrassed of my titles. No, but, no, no. Uh, it doesn't have to be your own books, by the way. Any oh, book? okay. I like to give away my books because I oftentimes get more than I can use myself. I think the brothers... Karamazov has always been a favorite of mine, and especially for students that are sort of finding their way. And I see a bit of myself in them when I was in my late teens, early 20s, and they're struggling. I like to, if not gift them the book, um, to recommend Dostoevsky in general to them. Yeah, great. What's your Desert Island music? I like Bossa Nova, and um, this is a little shameful, I suppose, but it betrays my age, but I, I'm, I, I still like 80s music. No, why not? Why yeah. not? Winding down away from work, tell me a bit more about your hobbies. Well, I live in New Zealand now, so the past seven years has been a bit of an adventure for me. We've been traveling all around the South Island, going to these incredibly beautiful places. I still oftentimes feel like I'm living in some utopia or the land of the lost, really, so when, we're, when we're going to these places. But we go for a lot of hikes, or as they call it, tramping here, to national parks and the beach, ocean, a lot of oceans here, of course. Well, one ocean, but lots of beaches. And we take the dogs pretty much wherever we go. We've got two border terriers that are very mischievous and high maintenance and we like to do things with them lovely what's the kindest thing anyone's ever done for you i don't think i would say i have a, a particular discreet episode of the kindest thing that somebody has done there have been many i'm sure but what i i really always find very touching and rewarding is when students that i've had in the past have reached out to me and thanked me for something that i've shared with them or taught them in the past and told me about how well they're doing now in terms of their career their, their personal lives and that i've somehow made a difference along their life journey and 
those are always really meaningful messages to receive. And of course, I, I love hearing from readers that have found something useful in my books as well. And that makes a lot of sense. And actually, just finally, I meant to mention, you've just signed a new book deal. So can you give us a hint about what you're planning on writing about next? Yeah, in broad strokes, it's it's very much a work in progress, but it is about the science of afterlife beliefs. And I will be forensically examining, I suppose is one way to describe it, some particularly provocative paranormal cases and pitting those cases against what we know about the cognitive science of thinking about life after death and how the sort of the tension between the paranormal interpretations and the psychological explanations. So this is the Dead Minds book? Yes. The working title is Dead Minds, yes. Working title. Fantastic. And with that, Jesse, let me close by thanking you enormously for your time, your candor, your openness, and, and your really deep insights. We've covered such a range of subjects, many of them you know, not straightforward or easy. And the topics have absolutely taken me into new areas of BS understanding, perhaps a darker underbelly at times. And, you know, it, it goes without saying that humans are odd and unpredictable creatures. And today's conversation emphasizes that if it needed doing. And I at least have learned so much in a short space of time. So thank you. Thank you, Daniel. It's been a pleasure. That is the end of part two with Jesse. Over the course of the last two podcasts, we've covered a vast canvas. We've touched on subjects, all of which are very fundamental to our existence, some of which are necessarily sombre, like suicide, some of which bridge the divide between logic and conspiracy, like the afterlife, and some of which are just titillating but always tricky, like sex and fetishes. My fetish, uh, perhaps unsurprisingly, is a load of BS. So before I close, can I ask you a small favour again? If you haven't done so, go to Apple, Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcast. Subscribe, follow me, press whatever button you need to and leave me a five-star review. All your support is truly, truly appreciated. The engagement is really great and the more, the more, the merrier. So if you haven't signed up also for all my writings on Monday BS and the pod archives, now is the time to do that too. You can do that at aloadofbs.substack.com. Now next time, following on neatly from taboos, I welcome rituals expert Dr. Dimitris Zigalatas talking low-key repetitive rituals, arousing rituals, and the collective ones which tend towards pain and the extreme. So if you're into body piercing, fire walking, and a dose of religion, then tune in. Be well and see you next time.